This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once again to the program. In following Lama Tsongkhapa's text, The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, We've been considering the verse encouraging us to develop the altruistic mind of bodhicitta. For example, in an article moderated by Dr. Louise Chang entitled Extreme Sports, What's the Appeal? Heather Hatfield asks why anyone in their right mind would want to submit themselves to the Ironman Triathlon. That's a 2.4-mile swim, followed by a 112-mile bike ride and a 26.2-mile full marathon all to be completed in 17 hours. Doctor of Psychology Justin Anderson, a sports consultant for the Center for Sports Psychology in Denton, Texas, says some people have an innate characteristic that leads to such activities. They get a lot of adrenaline by it, and they gravitate towards activities that give them that feeling, she says. For some, it's jumping out of airplanes. For others, it's climbing Mount Everest. And for others, it's the Iron Man. When they find that sport or activity that gives them that feeling, they say there's nothing better. And Dr. Lester Myers, Director of Sports Medicine at Pace University in Pleasantville, says, Researchers have found that the primary difference between the elite and the non-elite triathlete was that the goal was key, and competition was the second factor. It's a sense of identity. The triathlon is not a sport that is crammed full of people. There are only a handful of people who have the ability to train for and accomplish this feat. Such feats may bring a measure of money, fame and glory, but, says Dr. Mayers, caring for athletes as I do, my own personal opinion is that the most important desire they have is for respect. Anyway, this just shows that some of us might seek out suffering, but the aim is to land up with some kind of satisfaction. I guess the masochist has the same goal, I wouldn't think that respect features much in that. The second of the nine points is that one's being's happiness is not important than any others. The classic example that Tupton children used was the ten beggar one. That is, if you saw ten beggars in the street and you had enough to give them all something, would you choose instead to give everything to only one or two? The reasoning goes that no, you wouldn't. You'd be more inclined to share what you had with them all equally. Similarly, every being's happiness is the same as any other's, so there's no need to discriminate, especially thinking that one's own happiness is worth more than any other's. The third point is the same as the second, but from the point of view of suffering. That is, it's not more important to relieve one being's suffering than any other's. And here the classic example is ten sick people. If you walked into a ward of equally sick people, would you discriminate between them, choosing to help one or two but not the others. That is, if you had the capability of helping all of them. 
Again, no, why would you? Similarly, seeing all beings in cyclic existence are suffering equally, there's no need to discriminate and think one's own suffering is more important to relieve than others. In fact, it's more important to relieve the suffering of others who are many than the one who is only me. The fourth point is that all beings have been kind to us, so we should try to help them in return. Nothing we use or consume could have come into being without the assistance of multiple others in some way or the other. Every material thing that makes us comfortable and happy is a product of others' efforts, knowledge, skill or innovation. Even if their motivation was not to directly benefit us, they have done so, and in our gratitude we should at least have the aspiration to return their kindness. Beings have also been kind to us in many ways over many lifetimes, especially as our parents and caregivers. The Buddha said that looking back over all his lives, he couldn't find a first one. And that means we also don't have a first life, and in many of the infinite of our previous lives, we've had a mother and father. Those parents haven't been the same beings every time, so an uncountable number of beings have been our parents. We cannot in all honesty point to any being in our environment and and say, that being has never been my mother or father. Then, when we consider the mother and father of this life, we will see how very kind they were to us, sometimes even to their own detriment. They gave us life, fed, clothed, sheltered and educated us, and provided for almost all our needs. Every being that has been our parent has done the same. So beings overall have been incredibly kind to us, and again, we should at least try to help them in return. Then the fifth point we discussed was that a being may have harmed me once or twice, but has actually benefited me much, much more. When we look closely at our lives, most of us have received much more benefit from others than harm. However, it is easy for us to remember and cling to the harm, conveniently forgetting all the benefit we got from them. Our fascination with harm and discomfort is shown so well in the media. What is the news filled with but the harm people do to each other? Some years back in Auckland, A newspaper started up devoted to good news, but it did not last long against the tabloids and dailies filled with horror stories. Our minds are a bit like that. We quickly forget the favours we get from others, but hold on, sometimes desperately, to the hurt they give us. His Holiness the Dalai Lama postulates that our basic nature is goodness and altruism, and that one of the reasons that we are fascinated by harmful stories is that they are so much more uncommon than the acts of goodness we experience daily. Also recalling the previous point of the nine, even if this life beings have hurt us, over many lifetimes they've been our parents and caregivers and shown us great kindness, far above any harm in this life. The sixth point takes into account that we are bound to die and looks at the value of holding on to grudges for the harm we may have received from others. Although death is inevitable, We don't know when it will hit us. But imagine if, as you suddenly died, you were nursing a lot of hatred for someone who harmed you. How would that affect you? In Buddhist terms, it would not be so good. Your death would be unhappy, and so would your coming life. However, if during your life you'd managed to forgive and die with a peaceful mind, death may not be such a frightful ordeal, and nor would your coming life or lives. Then the seventh point is that friend, enemy, stranger, oneself or others are not all inherently existent. 
All of these are just judgments made from a particular point of view. For instance, think of your close friend and remember how that person became your friend. There will be people in the world who don't think the same as you do about this person. In fact, some may actively dislike this person you view as a friend. They may think of this person as an enemy. If the person was really inherently a friend, everyone would see them as such. But that's not so. And we can say the same about our enemy and any stranger. They don't exist inherently that way at all. They're all judged and labelled like that by one's mind. Furthermore, if beings were inherently existent as friend or enemy, a Buddha would see them as such. However, that's not how a Buddha sees beings at all. The eighth point is a continuation. If friend, enemy, stranger, self and others were inherently existent, they would never change. We have all had the experience of a friend becoming an enemy or a stranger after some time. It's very common. Also, enemies can easily become friends when circumstances change or some kindness is shown. And enemies and friends are always strangers before they become friends or enemies. If these were inherently existent, that means truly existent as friends, enemies and strangers from their own side, they could not change. Their very nature would be friend, enemy or stranger. But according to our experience, this is just not so. The final point is that the distinguishing of self and other doesn't inherently exist because self and other is dependent on the viewpoint one is ad adopting. If I were really self from my own side and you were other, then you couldn't call yourself self or me other. I would always be self and you would always be other. However, the truth is that from my point of view I am self and you are other, but from your point of view you are self and I am other. Self and other is thus entirely dependent on the point of view. Of course, our conditioning to regard myself as self and everyone else as other is very strong. But as Tupton Children points out, babies whose social conditioning is not yet so strong have a much more fluid sense of self and other. That's not to say that babies are enlightened beings somehow and become contaminated by the growing up process. However, it does indicate that it's possible to overcome our conditioning and eventually arrive at a position in which there is little or no differentiation between self and other. And that's what we want, to see self and other as equal. So now we've briefly gone through the nine points again. But although it's a bit late, we'd better set our motivation as we usually do. Please, if you can, motivate that this program becomes the cause for the liberation and enlightenment of all beings. If you have a bodhicitta inclination, you can in particular think that you yourself will lead them all there. Thank you. We've now completed thinking about the first part of the equalizing and exchange self for other method to develop bodhicitta, and we come to the second part, the exchanging self for others. Of course, this doesn't mean physically taking over someone else's body and they taking over yours in some sort of mutual spirit swap. It means changing our innate self-concern for a concern for others. Taken to the extreme, it, may be, it means becoming like a Buddha, completely concerned with the welfare of others and no longer concerned with the welfare of oneself. This exchange of oneself for others 
is dependent on first equalizing self and others. Because if you tried to swap your self-concern for concern for your enemy, you would probably find it virtually impossible. You might find it a little easier to do for your friend, but again it would be difficult to do for a stranger. Also, it would be much easier to do if we can see the fluidity in the definitions of self and other, that these terms are based on a point of view and don't have intrinsic meaning in themselves. The meditation has four points. First of all, the disadvantages of self-centeredness. Then, the advantages of cherishing others. Then thirdly, exchanging self for others. And fourth, taking and giving. So let's start with the first one, the disadvantages of self-centeredness. I'm sure that you would have at some time met up with someone whose only concern was their own well-being and happiness. What was it like to be with such a person? Well, usually it's not a pleasant experience, unless, of course, you're an acolyte of Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street. Tipton Choden agrees that self-centeredness is hard to deal with, but she says there's always one exception, our own self-centeredness. She says, When we have to be around other people who are self-centered, their selfishness is really a drag. But our self-centeredness is just self-protection, taking care of ourselves, making ourselves happy. We have all sorts of ways of justifying our own self-preoccupation so that it doesn't seem selfish, because nobody wants to think of themselves as selfish. We don't want to think of ourselves as selfish people, do we? No, those other people are selfish. We are very nice. We are good Buddhists, right? Buddhists aren't selfish, just those other people are. But I can't really help you now, because I've got so many things to do, and I can't give a donation to your charity, because I just bought my fifth bicycle. And you know, I'm sorry, I can't go visit Aunt Ethel in the hospital, even though she's really ill, and it would help her, because my favorite TV program is on tonight, and so on and so on. Do you see how we create this exception for ourselves and we justify everything we do in terms of our self-centeredness? When we consider the disadvantages of self-centeredness, however, we begin to see the fallacy in all our rationalizations and we can start to avoid them. We first have to start by admitting that we are self-centered. Most of us are, and it takes an extraordinary person perhaps one who has meditated on the disadvantages of self-centeredness in previous lives, to be naturally altruistic. Tipton Children says that, seeing the disadvantages of self-centeredness, we can regret being like that, but we shouldn't feel guilty about it, because that just makes the problem worse. She points out that self-centeredness is not our intrinsic nature. It's just something we've become stuck with. It's been established through our wrong view. We recognize that we are not union-oneness with our self-centered attitude and that it is something that is glommed onto us, she writes. We can put it over there and turn to it and say, it's your fault and blame it. To counteract any guilt we may feel about being self-centered, and before we get into the textual discussion on the disadvantages of self-centeredness, I'd like to share a blog I found on the Huffington Post. It's by Professor Adam Grant of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and it's about being intelligently selfless. It is entitled, Who's Smarter, the Selfish or the Generous? And it goes like this. In 1992, a young CEO named Kurt Herwalt apparently gave away half a million dollars of his company's money. His company, Stevens Aviation, had been advertising with the slogan, 
plain smart. Unaware that Stevens had a copyright on the slogan, Southwest Airlines launched an advertising campaign with a tagline, Just Plain Smart. Uh, plain here is P-L-A-N-E. At the time, notes Harvard professor Robert Bourdon, neither company was particularly large or well-known. A lawsuit would cost Southwest half a million dollars and Southwest's campaign wasn't really hurting Stevens. Whereas Southwest was targeting consumers, Stevens specialized in business-to-business market in aviation sales and maintenance. Hervalt ended up handing the slogan over to Southwest, asking for nothing in return. Was this a wise decision? Now, most people say no. A smart person wouldn't give the slogan away. After all, smart people are shrewd, calculating and logical, not helpful, caring and compassionate. To illustrate, imagine that two people, Einstein and Bowser the Clown, are about to make choices about giving money to a stranger. Einstein is very smart, scoring in the top 20% of the population on an intelligence test. Bozo is less bright, scoring in the bottom 20%. They both have $4 to give to a stranger. Whatever they give, they lose, but it will be doubled for the stranger. Who will give more, Einstein or Bozo? When Dutch psychologists asked people to predict whether Einstein or Bozo would give more, their guesses depended on whether their own motivations leaned towards giving or taking. They were confident that Einstein would share their preferences. Naturally, the rational choice is the course of action that we ourselves would follow. The takers, who adopted a self-serving approach to the world, expected Bozo to give more than twice as much as Einstein. In the mind of a taker, generous people are naive suckers. It's smarter to maximize our own individual interests. But the givers, those who enjoyed helping others, made the opposite prediction. They expected Einstein to give 56% more than Bozo. In the mind of a giver, takers are short-sighted and unenlightened. Wise people are willing to give when the benefits to others exceed the personal costs. So who's right? In a series of experiments led by the Yale psychologist David Rand, people's actual choices fluctuated based on whether they had time to think. When they had less than 10 seconds to choose, more than 55% gave. But when they had more time to reflect, giving rates dropped, with fewer than 45% giving. This follows a pattern that Rand and colleagues call spontaneous giving and calculated greed. When our decisions are governed by emotion and instinct, we act generously. When we have time to rationally analyze the options, we become more selfish. At first glance, this seems to suggest that smart people are more likely to take than give. Kurt Hervalt doesn't think so. Over the three years after he gave the slogan away to Southwest Airlines, revenue at Stevens spiked from 28 million to over 100 million. According to Hervalt, his decision about the slogan was a major driver of the company's success. The blog now goes on to cover three groups of researchers who investigated the selfless behavior of smart people. In the first, some Belgian researchers gave hundreds of people an intelligence test in which they had to solve complex problems in a limited time. Then the participants were divided into four groups and had to choose whether to take resources for themselves or give them to the group. 
a quarter of the participants gave more than 75% of their resources to the group. The rest took either most of the resources for themselves or shared the resources equally. Interestingly, the givers, the 25%, were significantly better on the intelligence test than the others. They also did better on a test of reaction times, measuring the speed with which they pressed numbers on a keyboard. In another research project, Professor Grant writes, The economist Russell James carefully analyzed a study of a representative sample of thousands of Americans above age 50, looking for connections between intelligence and patterns of giving. Those who scored higher on intelligence tests were more likely to give money to charity, even after controlling for their income, wealth, health, education and age. And in the third project, and again I quote, Funderbilt researchers Bruce Barry and Ray Friedman measured the intelligence of nearly a hundred negotiators using quantitative, verbal and analytical reasoning problems. Then, the participants negotiate the sale and purchase of a property in pairs as buyers and sellers. Barry and Friedman found that the smarter negotiators actually gave more value to their counterparts at the opposite end of the bargaining table. It seems the more smart you are, the better you are able to analyze the interests of others and also you tend to avoid win-lose type thinking. Professor Grant writes, As Barry and Friedman explain, the smarter negotiator appears to be able to understand his or her opponent's true interests and thus to provide them with better deals at little cost to him or herself. Armed with richer knowledge of other people's needs, you are able to be more creative in finding things to give to others that cost you nothing or even benefit you as well. Professor Grant goes on to explain why the Kurt Havalt's decision about the slogan was so effective. By handing the slogan over to Southwest, Herwald was offering a gift that cost him nothing. And by gaining a clear understanding of his counterpart's interests, he was able to convert this gift into a win for Stevens as well as Southwest. Herwald did some homework on Herb Kelleher, the colorful co-founder and then CEO of Southwest Airlines. Learning that Kelleher had a, had a reputation for being a ham, Herwald pitched an unconventional idea. Instead of going to court, they should ha hold an arm wrestling contest. The victor would earn the rights to the slogan and select a charity to which the loser would donate $5,000. Kelleher agreed, and the two companies staged an arm wrestling match called Malice in Dallas, which attracted thousands of attendees and international media coverage. As Herwald anticipated, Kelleher pulled out all the stops, strutting like a professional wrestler, smoking a cigar and carrying wild turkey bourbon. The two companies donated the $15,000 proceeds to charity, and according to Southwest's PR manager, the publicity generated by the event was worth $6 million. Although Herwald won the match, he was so pleased with the outcome that he signed the rights to the slogan over to Southwest anyway. Kelleher received a letter from the then President George H.W. Bush. Just plain terrific. Your clever arm wrestling with Kurt Herwald was a win-win, not to mention great comic relief. Being smart doesn't mean being the tin man, writes Professor Grant, referring to the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Any more than being caring means lacking a brain like the scarecrow. In fact, intelligence and concern for others often goes hand in hand. This doesn't mean it's wise to give away the farm. 
The key is to use our brain power to make sure that our contributions to others don't come at the expense of our own interests. And this is a valid point. Exchanging self for others doesn't mean that we put ourselves into a serious disadvantage or work ourselves to the point of compassion fatigue for the sake of others. In fact, what is the use of putting ourselves in such dire straits that we can no, no longer be of any service to others? As I've said before, Westerners are very good at playing the compassionate helper while disregarding their own well-being. Dr. F. Oshberg in his book When Helping Hurts reminds us that compassion fatigue is a process. He writes, It's not a matter of one day you're living your life with a great deal of energy and enjoyment and the next you wake up exhausted and devoid of any energy, both physical and emotional. Compassion fatigue develops over time, taking weeks, sometimes years to surface. Basically, it's a low-level chronic clouding of caring and concern for others in your life, whether you work in or outside the home. Over time, your ability to feel and care for others becomes eroded through overuse of your skills of compassion. You also might experience an emotional blunting, whereby you react to situations differently than one would normally expect. An interesting article by Caleb Wilde on how to cope with burnout and compassion fatigue among funeral directors can be found on the blog Confessions of a Funeral Director on www.calebwilde.com. Wilde lists five positive coping strategies that although aimed at funeral directors could be applied to many other situations as well. The strategies are, first of all, avoidance. He writes that if the business you're involved in is damaging your life and the lives of those around you, it's best to quit. Of course, in terms of what we're talking about, you can't quit trying to become a bodhisattva, but you can quit activities that you are doing and find something that will give you refreshment. His second strategy is what we as Buddhists are trying to do anyway, that is develop deep altruism. Learn to love serving others, he writes. Probably the best means to cope is found in the people we serve. Love them intentionally and don't be afraid to find joy in meeting their needs. Don't be afraid to hear their stories and become part of their family. Wilde's next strategy he calls problem solving. Don't be passive with the burdens you carry, he writes. Actively attempt to find positive ways to deal with your burden. Exercise, eat better, take a vacation, go out with your friends. If you can't shed your burdens on your own, seek counseling. Talk out your problems with someone wiser than you. Naturally, in Buddhism, we usually have a teacher we can confide in, but sometimes it's difficult even to talk to him or her. Nevertheless, we can find someone, even if it's a stranger monk or nun, who will listen with patience and empathy and help to lighten the burden. Next, he talks about finding a spiritual community, but says we have to be careful how to use it. Using religion as an opiate to ignore reality is something I speak against on a regular basis, he writes. Instead, seek a community where there's faith authenticity. Find people who can encourage you with their love and support as you worship together and ponder the mysteries and truths of a better world. And finally, he quotes Ralph Waldo Anderson's When it is darkest, men see the stars. He talks about remembering death, not only about our own physical death, but also the death of all our plans and projects. It's a reminder of what the Buddhist teachings continually tell us, that death is our closest companion and to find meaning in our life where we have it. And now we've run out of time without quite getting to the disadvantages of self-centeredness as described in the text. But there's always next week if death doesn't come first.
Thank you for joining the program today, and please tune in again next week. Please dedicate, as usual, to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/slash Free FM eighty nine to find out more.